what if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Let's scroll down on the right here and see what the clinical history is. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. This is White Coat Blackheart. Let's measure what we got. Measure, so the yeah. very first thing is, what did we receive? So you just do it right on the right margin on the itself? Right on and a little, a little bit around the edge. Yeah. Okay. Then we want to describe everything else. So we start from the outside. Um, I would say it's a bit, I don't know if congested it's is the right word. Very congested, yeah. yeah. Cirrhosis congested. Now when we in a lab cirrhosis. at the University of Alberta Hospital in Edmonton, Marla Beach, a pathologist's assistant, shows a new resident the ins and outs of an appendix that surgeons removed from a kid with appendicitis. But this is much more than show and tell. We're going to gross an appendix. But Help yeah. me out, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. So do you want to slide in here? Oh, yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much. Now, I've, I've grossed one once myself, so I know kind of where you're supposed to cut. I don't typically do the dictations. Marla is teaching the resident how to gross an appendix. That's tech talk for marking up and cutting precise samples of the diseased bits. So we can start cutting. Okay. That's the fun part. <laughs> now let's meet the resident. Hi, my name's JJ Mrocek. Uh, I am a first-year general pathology resident at the University of Alberta. Uh, we're here right now in the pathology department. You feel at home here? Yes, definitely. Very comfortable. It's my new my new home. I'm not sure that I was as excited about my residency as, as you are <laughs> at the time. Pathology's got a really good quality of life and uh, really wonderful staff and residents, so I'm very happy to be here. What's important is that JJ loves what she's doing. It wasn't always that way. Things got so bad, JJ came perilously close to quitting medicine. She discovered that doctors who are trained to welcome all patients, both typical and atypical, seldom cut colleagues the same kind of slack. Especially so when, like JJ, the physician has autism spectrum disorder. You know that TV show, The Good Doctor? Well, this is the story of the real deal. The story of a budding pathologist who feared she might be too pathological to be a doctor but hung in there through sheer determination by tapping into her superpowers. JJ, welcome to White Coat Blackheart. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You've had quite a journey to get to where you are today, and we're going to be hearing all about that. But let me go back even even further than the events of the last few uh, years and getting diagnosed. But why did you want to be a physician? If you'd asked me when I was a little girl what I wanted to do, that would have been what I would have said. that um, I wanted to be a doctor. At some point... I kind of lost my way, decided to do my master's degree in social work, and it was through working with people. That idea of applying to medical school re-entered my mind, and I, I couldn't shake it. Going in, did you ever anticipate that training to be a physician uh, would be challenging to you? I thought it would be a appropriately challenging. I didn't expect or anticipate just how hard it would be. Uh, I was trying as hard as I could, and, and it was just very difficult, especially without a science background. My first year of medical school in Calgary was extraordinarily challenging for me. What was your experience like there? Um, I'll start with the social element. I was 28 when I started med school, and I, I, I really didn't connect with anyone in my class right off the bat. 
everyone around me was they were all making friends with each other and I felt like I would sit in lectures and people would kind of seat themselves and no one would really sit next to me and it's a strange thing to admit that you struggle socially as a grown adult but I, I, I noticed it was it was a terrible feeling and so in tandem with that then I'm also experiencing academic difficulty for the first time in my life. I passed my whole first year successfully but the very first exam at medical school I actually failed by one point and it was devastating. And then you went on rotations. Yeah. The second half of medical school. What what happened there? <laughs> well, I actually took a year off between my first and second year of medical school to just self-study because I wanted to make sure that I would be at the same level as my peers. So when I got to clerkship, it was beautiful. I was getting such great feedback and I was so happy up until my first, I would say, catastrophic rotation. <laughs> what What rotation was it? It was psychiatry. I was working with a preceptor and it was, and actually I think things went well to start. And then very abruptly, I could sense things starting to change and her demeanor with me changed. So this is one of the things that I struggle with as an autistic person is I take what, what worked for me in other scenarios and I try to apply them to new scenarios. So in internal medicine, you are very rewarded for doing as much as you can independently before having to get input from your senior as long as you're doing it safely. But I didn't realize that I didn't pick up on the social cues that this particular preceptor did not want me to arrive and start seeing patients in the morning without her. JJ knew something was wrong, but says the preceptor wasn't clear about what was expected of her. She did pass the rotation, but a few weeks later, she did a one-month rotation in obstetrics and gynecology. So there was this one preceptor, and, and you know, you just get a sense that someone doesn't like you. <laughs> she didn't like me, I could tell. My very last shift of the rotation, she had to observe one of my histories. A, a pregnant woman about a concern that she'd arrived with. She was giving birth, and before we went into the room, she said, when you're asking a pregnant patient about her obstetric history, ask the patient to tell you, um, but don't say things like, oh, I see you've had two past pregnancies, or because there's sensitive topics like abortion and miscarriage. And so I said, okay. So we go in the room and I proceed to immediately ask the question the way I had just been told not to. And obviously I was- About the prior pregnancies. Yeah, I think I just said, okay, so I see, you, so you've had two past pregnancies. And then immediately like, oh gosh. But, you know, it's not a catastrophic error where the patient was, you know, harmed. I did not anticipate that she would proceed to berate me publicly. And I held my med student clipboard to my chest and my arms were shaking and I started to cry. And all I could tell her was, I am so sorry. I was so remorseful, but she launches into more abuse. And then I, I was angry and we were essentially arguing at this point. Eventually, we, we couldn't come to a resolution, but on that particular rotation as a med student, you have a booklet where every day you get your preceptor to sign and say, this, these are the things you did well, these are the things you can work on. So I had signed feedback from multiple obstetricians for you know a, a four-week rotation saying, like, good job on this, good job on this. No one at any point had expressed any concern to me whatsoever. And the evaluation came back and I had failed the rotation. And I opened that result and I screamed. I was just devastated, horrified. JJ appealed to the Associate Dean of Medicine and got the failing grade reversed, but her confidence was shattered. She began to wonder if her conflicts with preceptors were part of a more pervasive pattern. JJ says the story at this point takes an important detour. She'd started going out with Jared Cooper, 
a few years ahead of her at med school. This is all in the context of me meeting my partner, Jared, my fiance. A year later, he met some of my family for the first time, including my dad. And he remarked afterwards that perhaps my dad might be on the spectrum, actually. And I thought, huh, maybe. Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. And Jared and I moved in together. And it was in that process that I realized I am much more rigid than I thought. And there'd be times that Jared would say like, wow, what you just said was really rude. Or just I, when I say things, truth and justice outweigh the social niceties. So there's, there's this kind of undercurrent building, but it hadn't really crossed the threshold of, well, this is an important enough problem to really investigate now. I'm in the middle of medical school. I don't have time or the money to pursue this diagnosis at the moment, but let's... It's expensive to make the diagnosis? Oh yeah, it was time sensitive. So I, I couldn't wait on wait lists. I had to get the information now. So I probably paid, gosh, anywhere between 2000 and $3,000 for a psychologist to diagnose me. The student loans <laughs> paid for it. We're already going into so much debt. So I figured if this is going to help me and help my career, then this is just part of the, the cost of going to medical school. Because if I don't, then I think my career could be in jeopardy. And so I, I said, you know, I, I have to go get diagnosed. Honestly, actually, the first psychologist I called, we connected right away. We had a little 15-minute chat. And she, by the way, the first time we spoke, already gave me a provisional diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. She said, you know, we obviously have to go through this whole process, but what you are describing sounds exactly like autism. How did you feel when she told you? The moment she told me this is probably what the result's going to be, it, that felt like the moment that I knew I was autistic. It felt like every uncertainty I've ever had about myself was answered in that moment. A lifetime of feeling just slightly out of place. You know, being a woman with autism, women are often rewarded for very pro-social behavior. So you learn to mask really well. And so you kind of, I kind of went through life thinking, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a bit strange, but you know, this is just who I am. And so really to have a label on it, it was probably one of the best moments of my life. It really tied together every difficulty I'd ever experienced from a social perspective and gave me a, a singular answer, which we love in medicine. We love the unifying diagnosis. You must have wondered if there was a place for you in medicine. Yes, I, I, I thought very seriously about whether I even wanted to finish medical school. Um, I was so disheartened by what happened. And at this time, I'm already starting to have my doubts about internal medicine, which is what I applied to in the match. But I thought, I've made it this far. I'm going to just white knuckle till the end, and I'm going to do this. So I did. JJ applied for several postgraduate residency positions. She accepted an offer to do internal medicine at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. It seemed like a fresh start. But from the beginning, things didn't go well. I did not anticipate just how hard the 26-hour shifts would be as a person on the spectrum. So my first experience with staying up the entire 26 hours, I was slurring my words. Now, that's not unique to autism, but certainly I felt my emotional regulation was very poor at the end of that shift. And that for sure is related to autism. And there's all this beeping, all this commotion, even when things are calm, it's still very difficult. And I would, you know, wear my noise canceling headphones, which I have accommodations to do. But even with that, it, it was very difficult. So how did the switch to pathology come about? Well, I have a friend, a very good friend. She um, matched to pathology in Calgary. She pointed out that the things I was describing 
as enjoyable all were consistent with pathology and so she suggested you should you know before quitting medicine entirely you should give it a try so i reached out to the program director here in edmonton and i actually told my program director before she signed the paperwork i said just so you know i'm on the spectrum and you know that's played a large part in why how did you feel revealing that it's a bit scary i i've now i do it with everyone in clinical medicine it's just better to explain i'd rather be who i am and you reject that and not take me than not share that and then you know feel like i'm not in the right place for me do you ever feel like you're fitting into the stereotype of uh, you know in a way as a, as a doctor with asd going into pathology <laughs> honestly yeah but i'm also very okay with that <laughs> and you know certainly you're not alone. You're not as alone as you think you are. You know, for instance, for me, for decades, I've struggled with figuring out how I fit in. But you had a lot more on your plate. What did your experience tell you about how welcoming medical schools are for people who are neurodivergent? Yeah, I think it's unfortunately still hostile. Hostile at the worst and at the best, just not getting it. Yeah, uninviting, not getting it. Not curious. Yeah. I remember in my first year of medical school, I had a, you have like a core group where you have five students and you do these little two hour stints in the hospital and they kind of stop interacting with me, except for one, one, he was wonderful. So I asked, can you tell me what I've done to upset everyone? And he says, they think you're too loud. He says, they think that you, you don't have any control over your volume. And especially in a hospital setting, you make them uncomfortable. And I believe that that's true, but it was painful to have to, instead of them coming to me, to have to seek that out myself. People don't know what to do about it when you're neurodiverse. So they shunned you. <laughs> that's, that's what you're saying. And, and, and what's so bizarre about this is that what are they supposed to do with a patient who's neurodivergent? Right. Well, and you know, when people make us uncomfortable, particularly like if there's a patient who's neurodiverse, I imagine that physician is not going to be giving them the best care possible. And this is actually another problem is I think there's this hidden assumption we all have in medicine, including myself. In order to get into medical school, not only do you have to be intelligent, capable, empathetic, hardworking, but there's this invisible presumption that you don't have a disability. And I think that lack of curiosity of, well, where could this behavior be coming from? Maybe it is coming from a place of diversity. This assumption we have that we are all the same, I think that's where that is rooted. And that we're all supposed to be the same in within medical culture. Yeah. yeah. Scary thought. I suspect that much of the talk around people with ASD is framed in terms of their challenges and deficiencies. And you've talked about them at length. You know, you've been quite self-deprecating. <laughs> but you have superpowers too, don't you? Yeah, I think one thing is... Autistic people have what are called special interests, and one of them happens to be medicine. I am compelled by pathophysiology. I love learning about disease and medicine and things that can go wrong in the body. And I, you know, at the end of a full day of work in pathology, I will come home and study and just be totally happy as a clam. I have a lot of other special interests. Like what? <laughs> um, I really love the UK royal family. Um, what else? Uh, languages, for sure. Playing piano is another one of her special interests. That's JJ a few years back playing her favorite Beethoven sonata. Somehow superpower seems more incisive. We'll be right back.
Hi there, I'm Gavin Crawford. I'm a writer, an actor, and a comedian. And for the last eight or nine years, I have been navigating life with my mother's increasing dementia. Has it been sad? Yeah. Has it been funny? Also, yeah. That's what my brand new podcast series, Let's Not Be Kidding, is about. It's the true story of my life as a comedian, my mom, and dementia. Let's Not Be Kidding, with me, Gavin Crawford. A new seven-part series from CBC Podcasts, available now. You're listening to White Coat Black Art. Just before finishing med school at the age of 32, J.J. Mrachik was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder and struggled to thrive in a medical world that often demonstrates difficulty accepting colleagues who are, as J.J. calls it, neurodiverse. Since starting a residency in pathology last fall, J.J. has begun to find her place in medicine. Pathology has allowed her to indulge her deep passion to understand human diseases. It's also given J.J. an outlet for yet another of her superpowers, a thirst for justice. So, special interest in medicine and other things. Yeah. What are some of your other superpowers? Sense of justice. Yes. It gives you a lot of satisfaction and you're doing good in the world by pursuing what you feel is just. I feel that I am I'm making something a little bit more right in the world. To JJ, justice as a special interest means possessing a powerful drive to discover how and why people die. As we're about to find out, one of the most effective places to do that inside an autopsy room. Why don't you give us a hi, my name is, tell me what you do. Oh, hi, my name is Dr. Tara Dixon. I'm a medical examiner. We're standing in the, the autopsy suite. Oh, that's a haircut. That's a hairnet. Gloves we need. Yes, yes these are probably the best kind of masks. Yeah. Individually sealed. Got it. Dr. Tara Dixon, Alberta's assistant chief medical examiner, is helping JJ and me suit up. You said these go over top? I've been invited to witness JJ's first forensic autopsy here at the medical examiner's office in Edmonton. Dr. Dixon is JJ's preceptor. So as part of the complete autopsy examination, I have to do start with an external examination, and that's my form here. When they, the body is admitted, the height's recorded and the weight's recorded. JJ has attended hospital autopsies before. This is her first forensic postmortem. When somebody passes away, there's postmortem changes that happen. Um, so I'm going to check for and document those findings. So one of them is Riger, and that's the stiffening. And then another uh, thing that I'm looking for is the liver mortis, which mm-hmm. is the, d- the gravity-dependent pooling of the red blood cells. You know, if the body is in a certain position for a length of time, like if it's a suspicious death, does the lividity match the story provided? Right, right? like have they been moved? Or, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just going to take some more pictures. The medical examiner investigates people who die unexpectedly, the manner of death, and whether the death was by accident, homicide, suicide, or from natural causes, for instance, from a disease or medical condition. I'm also looking for scars and tattoos. JJ and I watch as Dr. Dixon performs an autopsy on a teen who we can't name for privacy reasons. The teen was ill for a brief period before collapsing at home. Can I ask how long he was deceased before someone found him? Basically, he was found in cardiac arrest Mm. and brought in via ambulance. It says he was feeling unwell since Sunday with emesis and diarrhea. Mm. Family called 911. Fire department arrived to a witness cardiac Mm. arrest. He was resuscitated en route but pronounced deceased in the emergency department. 
JJ and Dr. Dixon are absorbed in the work of examining organs and looking for clues. Unlike her days in internal medicine, she thinks her skill set and temperament go better with this kind of work. I did not expect to enjoy it as much as I do. Uh, it was something I felt very neutral about when I was thinking about switching into pathology and when I did my elective. Um, it was one of the first things that I did. And I felt very surprised by the compassion that I felt, the interest that I felt in the medical mystery. It's a very rewarding process. Um, and you have to have a really good differential diagnosis. You have to know your medicine really well. In what ways does it suit you to do autopsy, do you think? You're not bothered by distractions that you might have on the medical ward? Okay, yes. So this is one thing. In internal medicine, something I found very difficult was the pager. <laughs> because, you know, pages will vary in um, their urgency, I guess. And you have to really prioritize that. And you may be doing something very important and dealing with a very sick patient. And then you get a page and you don't know what that page is going to be about necessarily. And then once you do know what it's about, you have to still kind of reintegrate that information into your day and prioritize. And as a person on the spectrum, I really thrive with order, consistency, knowing what I'm going to expect. And not getting redirected. Not getting redirected. Like we it's do an so, eMERGE all the time. Yeah, actually I found eMERGE a very stressful rotation for me in medical school for that reason. And internal medicine um, is not far behind. And so what I love about autopsy is here we are doing this task, start to finish. And there may be things that you find that are not expected, but... Um, at least the process is fairly consistent and you can expect to be able to do your job start to finish and reasonably. The, fa the fact that Dr. Dixon does it the same way every time, that's something that suits you? Yeah, that's very comforting to me. I love routine. I love structure. So yeah, now that you say that, absolutely. What superpowers do you think you bring to, to an autopsy? You think you're going to bring if this is your career? Yeah, well, I think compassion. It's funny because most people would think, well, how is that important for an autopsy? And I think to be able to do this procedure well and provide this family with information, I think is one of the most compassionate things that you can do. What about a sense of justice? Oh, yes. This is a way of kind of making things just in the world again. You're giving an answer. You're finding a, a reason for what's happened and sort of restoring that order. You know, it looks normal. I'm just going to get it out of the way. Have you ever worked with any residents who were identified as having autism spectrum disorder? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Right? I think pathology in general, you can have quirky personalities. So I've never met anybody that with the label. Yeah. yeah. So, so how do you feel like seeing, seeing JJ? How do you feel? She's got the label, but is she any different from anybody else? Um, no, I, I don't think so. You, you you seem very friendly and very interested, and those are always good qualities to have. I'm sure you'll be successful in your training if you carry that forward. So you probably haven't thought much about this, but do you think the medical community does enough to, to support physicians and you know, residents, medical students who might have ASD? I, I think there's probably not enough being done to help accommodate people, especially depending where somebody is on the spectrum. People may not be aware that they're having challenges, versus somebody who's maybe a little bit more odd that just kind of gets pushed to the side, right? So I think there's always more we can do. It would be difficult to pinpoint exactly how and where, because so much of medicine, I think, is, you know, interactions. So I feel like you're a very friendly person. I feel like we've had good interactions. Um, if somebody struggles with interacting with patients, that's a different story that's difficult to correct. So they probably could do very well in a specialty that doesn't have that patient interaction. But you still have to get there, right? You have to get through medical school. Mm -hmm. And I suppose if somebody doesn't know you very well, they 
depending on on whatever quirk you might have they might attribute it to lack of interest or yeah you know lack of conscientiousness or or whatever it might be uh, it's usually just easier to tell people honestly or if people just think you're weird <laughs> it's good for them to know I'm sure plenty of people think I'm weird too so the morgue tech has opened the the abdominal cavity JJ and Dr. Dixon look inside the belly and discover evidence that the teen died of peritonitis, an infection of the abdomen. The twosome make a critical discovery. Okay, tell us what you see. So we're looking at the appendix, and we see uh, full thickness perforations, basically a ruptured appendix with uh, peritonitis. Oh my gosh, I can't believe that was the first thing I said. (laughs) Luck, beginner's luck. As an emerge physician, that's the first thing I would have thought of. Yeah, really. In a in a young person yeah. who, but that it, it makes me feel sad because yeah. because it's a it's a curable disease. Absolutely. So you've been doing this now for for a number of years. How did you feel? It is always very satisfying to find the the smoking gun, as it were, <laughs> and you know, knowing that he died of a ruptured appendix, that's information that we can give the family to help with their closure. Yeah. I really was not um, prepared for how much I enjoyed that part of doing autopsies, just being a part of the closure piece for families. Closure for families is what JJ means when she talks about her passion for justice. It's a strong indication that she's found her place in medicine. How was, how was your afternoon? What did you do this afternoon? Uh, it was, so we had a malnutrition clinic this afternoon, and it was, yeah, we got to see a bunch of bunch of patients like literally and she's making a home with her fiance Jared Cooper who also happens to be a physician as mentioned Jared was the first person to suggest to JJ that her dad might have autism Jared was with JJ during the rough times you were there you were living together when JJ had the two rotations that that really set her back what was your kind of appreciation of what she was going through what did you see I just remember seeing you know kind of the the pain and the anguish that she had through all of that and it was the recovery seemed a lot more drawn out than than I would have expected it's just really I, I think it was just a lot of a lot of validating and a lot of supporting on my end through a lot of that but yeah it was really tough to see her go through that given that she's such a bright and vibrant kind of a person and then that was just a total 180 you must have had some misgivings when she said I'm going to go back in and I'm going to do a residency. <laughs> yeah, I was I was a little bit nervous obviously because of how uh, how hard that had been on her and you know you just kind of get a little bit of a protective feeling of well, are we sure we want to go back into that but you know when she gets her mindset to something and I mean I don't know if I would have had the courage to do a lot of the big life changes that she's done. Oh, you're such a good cat. Hey guys. I was going to show you. I got a picture upstairs. Jared sees hopeful signs that medical culture is becoming more welcoming of health professionals who are neurodivergent. JJ says she doesn't hide her diagnosis. She thinks telling colleagues promotes understanding. She won't rest until the medical world makes it easier for doctors on the spectrum to find their place. With her strong drive for justice, I wouldn't bet against her. That's our show this week. If you have comments, email us at whitecoat at cbc.ca. White Coat Black Art was produced this week by our senior producer, Colleen Ross, with help from Jeff Goods, Amina Zoffer, and Stephanie Dubois. Our digital writer is Jason Vermesh, and our digital producer is Ruby Buiza. That's medicine from my side of the gurney. I'm Brian Goldman. See you next week.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.